Welcome to episode two of Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, get people who are smarter than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and with me, as always, is Illinois Indiana Sea Grant's research coordinator, Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks, Stuart. How are you doing? I am also doing well, thanks. I'm super fired up to be here for episode two. I learned a lot in recording episode one. Uh, in addition to learning a bunch about microplastics, I also learned that I speak too fast. <laughs> I say um a lot. And instead of my room being an anechoic chamber, my room is an echoic chamber. So that was kind of an unfortunate thing to find out during the editing phase. But we're back now. We've learned a bunch and we're ready to roll. So this week, uh, you know, I was thinking after listening to the last episode that I really want to get a big picture of understanding of what's going on in the Great Lakes. But before I can do that, I thought it would be really nice to go back to very first principles. I don't even know almost literally the first thing about the Great Lakes right now, and I would like to figure that out. And so to do that, I contacted Professor Michael Twiss, uh, who is a professor of biology at Clarkson University. And so I thought it would be cool to talk to him about some basics about the Great Lakes. So let's bring on Dr. Twiss. Hello, Michael, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Thank you so much for coming on uh, Teach Me About the Great Lakes. So tell us a little bit about what you do over at Clarkson. Well, Stuart, um, I'm a professor of biology, and I teach a course called Great Lakes Water Protection, and I also teach a course called Limnology. Um, so limnology is not the study of arms and legs. Uh, limnology <laughs> is essentially freshwater oceanography. So it's the study of uh, lakes, rivers, and wetlands. And I also teach microbiology on the side and botany. So, uh, uh, oh, is that it? Th that's all. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do how do uh, so how are those connected? Limnology is like freshwater oceanography. Mm -hmm. Is that mainly about lakes, or is that about uh, you know? So, the rivers. How how are those connected? Are they very similar? Because I, I took a stream ecology course, but nothing mm -hmm. in in limnology. Right. Yeah. So, uh, stream ecology would be part of limnology, um, just like oceanography has physical chemical and biological components, uh, limnology has the same. So there are physical limnologists, uh, there are chemical limnologists, and biological limnologists. So in my course that I teach, I teach all those three components because you need to understand all of them in order to understand your lake or your river or your stream. Um, I also teach a, a, an aspect of limnology, which I consider to be uh, sustainability. So you know, our use of fresh waters and are they sustainable? So I've added a new sort of component to the classical three, three components oh, of analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it seems like you're just the right person then to, to uh, go into this topic. So thinking about the Great Lakes, it occurred to me that I don't even know where they came from, right? These are huge bodies of water. If I'm right, are they the largest inland lakes in the world? If not, they're among them. They're the largest system. They're the largest system of freshwater lakes. So um, from the point of view of surface area, they, they connect it all together. They create the largest freshwater system uh, on the surface of the earth. Uh, there's one other lake uh, called Lake Baikal in Russia. Okay. Um, it's in Siberia. And it has as much water as the Great Lakes, but it's far deeper. And it's far uh, smaller than the entire surface area of the Great Lakes. Oh, so it's got a lot more depth to it. It's got much more depth. Yeah, it's like four, four kilometers deep, two to four kilometers deep with at least six kilometers of sediment. So it's an ancient lake. Uh, whereas oh the Great Lakes of North America 
are are young. Um, they're like ten thousand years old, um, so they are relatively recent uh, feature on the surface of the Earth. Um, so there were people before the Great Lakes, and obviously there's people after the Great Lakes. Um, so when we look at them, we we consider them to be very young lakes. Yeah. So ten thousand years. So they're younger than agriculture, I guess. And uh, um, they're so about the they, same age. Yeah. Yeah. So how did they they get there? Were people already in that area, and then the lakes? I mean, what, I mean, there's not a volcano that created lakes or an earthquake or something like that. Uh, what? How did it go from no water to a bunch of water right there? Okay, so to answer your first question, yes, there were people around the Great Lakes when they were forming, um, and in fact, there are people in the Great Lakes basin, the Anishinaabe, who have stories about there being ice and proglacial lakes. Um, and so that's quite intriguing. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, some archaeological evidence that people were doing caribou hunting on what would have been tundra on Yankee Reef in, in Lake Huron uh, 10,000 years ago when, when the lakes were uh, actually in a drier stage and then they filled up. Um, that's so and cool. That, that is, that <laughs> yeah. is pretty, pretty awesome. So we, we, we consider uh, water level changes to have a real big impact on how we interact with the lakes nowadays. And but when you think about it, there are people that were living there and they adapted to that water level change, uh, which is quite drastic. That's like 50 meters. Right. So uh, looking to the future, um, we can probably look to the past to realize that, oh, people, people got by. So getting back to the uh, uh, the origin of the Great Lakes, um, we can take a really deep dive and go back a billion years. <clears throat> OK, so the Earth's about four billion years old. And so okay. a billion years ago, there is a supercontinent called Rodinia. Rodinia. Rodinia, yeah. And uh, there were land masses that were part of it, like tectonic plates, and they pushed together, and they formed this mountain chain. And it had no name because we never know what it, what, it, what it looked like. But we can estimate uh, that it was higher than the Himalayas. Huh. And it and it was right over the Great Lakes. And now you, you, you're probably being pretty skeptical about that because you probably think that's, <laughs> that's impossible. Um, but if you go to Lake Huron, for example, and you go to Georgian Bay, where the bedrock is right exposed to the surface of the lake, and the and essentially there's rock and then there's air or rock and water and air, um, you can actually see the the, the roots of that mountain system. Uh, and they can they've done a lot of geology to to determine what the age was. Uh, geology to determine what the heat must have been. And from that, they can determine how high they were. So that's a billion years ago, and they're gone. And they're gone because of erosion uh, and time. And so it acted to take all that material out into the Atlantic Ocean and into the rest of the Earth, uh, sorry, North America. And so that's part of it. So there's erosion. Um, and there's also these drastic events that occur occasionally. And we're currently in one right now, and it's uh, glaciation. So um, if you look at uh, sort of a globe or a map or Google Earth, you'll notice that there's large chunks of ice on the surface of the Earth. Sure. Uh, you look at Antarctica, you look at Greenland. Okay, so those, those are the remnants of glaciers that were quite larger uh, during the last glaciation. And, and thinking of Greenland, that's the one that's closest to us. Uh, that ice cap extended down through... North America, uh, especially the northern reaches of it, and it's now retreating. And unfortunately, it's retreating at a rate which is unprecedented. 
Um, but that is how the current shape of the Great Lakes was formed. So there is a, a glacier called uh, the Laurentide Ice Sheet. And Laurentide, yeah, and Laurentide is, 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 is named after Laurentia, which is this old part of Rodinia. So that's where the name came from. Oh, right. And yeah. so that's when you hear about the Laurentian Great Lakes. Is that related to the same thing then? That's right. Yeah. Um, so we, we call them the North American Great Lakes or the Laurentian Great Lakes, and that's to distinguish them from other Great Lakes around the Earth, like uh, the African Great Lakes, which have a totally different origin. They're, they're, they're formed by the, the continent of Africa splitting apart, and it's creating these rifts or troughs, and they fill full of, wa- and they fill full of water. Um, so they have a different origin. Yeah. So the, the Great Lakes are um, actually very shallow. Compared to other Great Lakes, like like super shallow. How shallow are they? Well, they're so shallow that well, when we do research in, on Lake Erie, um, we've joked that if the ship ever sinks in the central basin, all you have to do is climb up on the mast and you'll be out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, and if you think about it, there you are, and the lakes are so large that you can't see the shore, but it's really shallow. It's so you think of it, it's almost like a film of water over the surface. Um, I think the maximum depth is like 400 meters, 600 meters out in Lake Superior. Um, so, but they're very large. They're very large. But if you if you if you do it to scale, if you draw a map of it to scale, it's it's really a thin film of water on the surface of the Earth. Yeah. Um, but it, but it's all fresh water, and that's amazing that it's fresh water. Yeah. So, so can I ask a question? Um, yeah. So you talk about Great Lakes and things like that, and so. W- there are loads and loads and loads of tiny inland lakes, right? What is the definition that makes a lake great? Okay, so um, the limnologists, Great Lakes limnologists, kind of go by a rule of thumb that it's got to be like 500 kilometers squared in surface area. And so that would be a lake that's about 13 miles by 13 miles if it was a square it was a square lake. And so um, what happens when a lake is, is that size is that it behaves a lot differently than a smaller lake. Um, you get, you know, uh, currents, like you can get currents caused by Coriolis effects. Um, and that you don't get in a small lake because they don't have the same mass. Uh, whereas in larger lakes, you end up with these larger masses. So you have a, a physically quite a different system. And I'll just, um, so I'm a, a fellow um, born in Canada, now lives in the U.S. So I just wanted to say really quickly, um, because I get a lot of grief about talking in the metric system, um, mm-hmm. about three feet in one meter. So Yeah, about three feet in one meter. Yeah. Um, um, so the, what I use for a rule of thumb is, is 100 kilometers is 60 miles. So when you're driving down the road in Canada, you're, you're going about 100 kilometers an hour or a mile a minute. So you feel like you get places a lot faster in Canada when you're driving down the highway. You're like, yeah, yeah. I'm killing this. Yeah. Okay. And, the, and, the te- and the temperature is a lot colder. You notice <laughs> it'll go from 32 to zero. I'm also going to talk a bit about the Silurian Sea. Now, oh. yeah, the Silurian Sea was after the, the 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 mountains were long gone. 
um, about 600 million years after that. And I'm, I'm hoping I'm not putting you guys to sleep like a, a, a fairy tale or something. But No, I think this uh, is fascinating. Okay. Um, yeah, the Silurian Sea was an inland sea. And it was created around 440 million years ago. And we can see the remnants of it today. In fact, if you look out your window right now, you can probably see some remnants of it as well. And I'm talking road salt. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so, right now the um, wind is blowing so hard in West Lafayette that I think all of the road salt has, has blown into the Silurian Sea. But well, uh, I know yeah. what you mean. Okay. So the, um, the Silurian Sea was an inland sea, very warm. Um, it was before dinosaurs. Um, there's a lot of aquatic life, like corals and all sorts of creatures. Um, and the deposits of the Silurian Sea are now found as limestone deposits all around the Great Lakes. So Manitoulin Island is all this old limestone that was formed back then. Um, Niagara Falls, um, the limestone there that the, the, the water cascades over, um, is the remnants of the Silurian Sea. And if you look out on the map of, of the Great Lakes from Michigan down and around up through um, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and then it's New York, and then up the Bruce Peninsula, and then over to Manitoulin Island, it's like a circle. And that's the, the basin of the Silurian Sea. So all those um, deposits of, of, of creatures that created the limestone are left now as rock. And, so, and, and below it, there are deposits of salt and also deposits of oil and gas. And so if you're going through Michigan, it's flat as a board um, on the lower part like around Saginaw Bay. And that's kind of like the middle of the sea. And they, they pump for oil there. They pump for oil in southwestern Ontario. And that's because these, these, these organisms that lived in that sea for millions of years died and were buried and created oil deposits. And the evaporation left salt deposits, which we mine, and we actually distribute all around to, to control our roads for winter winter management. Unfortunately, it's, yeah. it's so really if there's all this salt there, why 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 isn't the why aren't the Great Lakes saline? Why aren't why aren't they filled with salt water? That's a good question. Um, actually, in Saginaw Bay, um, salt does diffuse out of that salt deposit into the water above, but the rate of diffusion is really low. Okay. And we get a lot of water in the Great Lakes, a lot of water through rain. And so we talk about these, these, these glaciers that melted. Well, that water is long gone um, because the water in the Great Lakes only hangs around around 600 years, which is a long time for us. Uh, but on a geological timescale, that water is, has come into the lakes and flowed out. The reason why they don't get salty is because uh, the Great Lakes are exoraic. So I'll, I'll repeat that word again, exoraic. And... What does it mean? Well, it means that limnologists make up lots of words for things. Um, <laughs> but an exoraic lake is a lake that is connected to the ocean. So if you think of the Great Lakes, they're connected by rivers, the St. Maris River, the St. Clair River, the Detroit River, the Niagara River, and all the water eventually flows out naturally through the St. Lawrence River to the North Atlantic Ocean. Okay. Um, if you think of uh, Lake Baikal, has a river that flows north into the uh, um, Arctic Ocean. Um, lake Geneva is a great lake between France and Switzerland, the Alps, and it flows out through the Rhone. And so those are exoraic lakes. And so because of that, the water flows in and flows out. There are some lakes, however, that are we call endoraic, 
And so the water doesn't flow out of them. The rivers flow in and then it doesn't connect to the ocean and it doesn't seep down into the earth. And so water just evaporates. Great Salt Lake out in Utah is an example of an endorheic lake where the rivers and streams flow into it, but there's no connection to the ocean. The water evaporates and all the dilute salts that are in the streams eventually concentrate in the lake, making it salty. And if you go out to the Middle East, there's the Sea of Galilee or Lake Kinneret, which is an exoraic lake because the water flows out the River Jordan down into the Dead Sea. And in the Dead Sea, there's no connection to the, to the ocean. The water just stops there and it evaporates. And that's a really super salty lake. Wow. This is, this is awesome. This is like we're getting our own personal limnology course. This is really nice. And I'll put a, some links to some of these terms in our, our show notes so that you can read about them. And if you want to see our show notes, you can go to uh, teachgreatlakes.transistor.fm slash two and check out the show notes and, and links there. So uh, with the all of these different lakes, we have some that leak out, some that or some that uh, flow out into the ocean, not leak out, uh, some that uh, get leaked into. Well, they all get leaked into, I guess, um, mm-hmm. at a minimum by the fish. But uh, and I have a question, though. Maybe you can help since I'm getting a personal limnology lesson. I'm, I'm from New Orleans, where I was born and raised. Ah. And so there we have Lake Pontchartrain, which yes. is not really a lake at all, is it? It is. It's a lake. It's a, it's a lake. Um, yep. It was formed by... Uh, uh, it's, we call it coastal lake. It's right on the coast. And it was probably caused by, uh, uh, at some time, a, a storm that built up some sediments and essentially prevented uh, a bay or cut off a bay from the ocean and then okay. filled up with, 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 with river water and flows out. Oh, interesting, because it's fairly saline. We called it brackish, but, I mean, you can catch brackish, sea trout and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah huh. it's, it's in between. So it's, it's on its way to becoming a lake unless a storm breaches it. And it'll just become part of the um, the coastal uh, Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you meant to say until a storm breaches it, but we'll see. Uh, well, it's it's, it's inevitable. Um, it can either get stronger and create more of a, a distinct lake, or or it can just revert back to where it originally was, uh, which was part of the Gulf of Mexico coast. Yeah. So the Great Lakes, about 10,000 years ago, is when, uh, if I'm getting this right, the, the glaciers melted and they uh, caused the Great Lakes to sort of fill up where the Silurian Sea was. Is that kind of the short version of the story? Um, the Silurian Sea uh, deposits make up some features of the Great Lakes. Okay. Uh, but they were, um, they're a lot softer rock than the, than the granite that makes up the Canadian Shield, which is the northern portions that are are exposed and they were exposed by the actions of the of the of the glaciers and if you think about it glaciers where where i'm sitting here the ice was predicted to have been two kilometers or about a mile high above my head huh yeah and so when it when it moves it really pushes a lot of things around and so that's a lot of that's a lot of mass and it's moving quite slowly but it's very effective at, at crushing rock and moving it around and all around the Great Lakes, you see that. Um, the Scarborough Bluffs beside Toronto are a pile of gravel, rocks, and sand that are just left there. And it's a really hazardous place because it's it's still eroding and because it's unstable, because it's just leftovers when the glaciers left and melted, you know, the, all this rock that was pushed in front. Um, really good farmland down in the, in, in the U.S., on the U.S. sides of the Great Lakes. Because a lot, of, a lot of the soils were pushed down and deposited there. Um, and if you go into the North Shore of Lake Superior, Lake Huron, 
know, not to, not to mention the, the harsh weather, um, the soils are quite thin, and that's a remnant of the of the glaciation. Interesting. So, it has a, so you know, a lot of our great farmland in this area is because of the the Great Lakes, essentially. Uh, because of the because of the glacier that that created yeah. them. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah. a, after the uh, the the ice left the region, um, the land was actually depressed. And depressed in the sense of uh, think uh, you know those mattresses where you where you sit on the mattress and yeah. you, you leave a you leave an imprint and then you pull your hand away and then it starts to slowly move back. That's the oh, same sure. thing. That, yeah, that's the same thing that happened here, uh, except it's in super slow motion, um, and it's still occurring. And so there's this what we call isostatic rebound, and so the lakes are actually and the land is moving and rising at different rates around the Great Lakes basin, and that really affects the water levels a lot because as i mentioned earlier the great lakes are very shallow yeah and so your, your your shoreline can just move up a little bit and all of a sudden you've got either more land exposed and somewhere else it'll go down and you've got less exposed so it's quite a um, um, an impact that it's having and still having so we're kind of we're we're, re, we're we're recovering i guess from the last glaciation so then going forward, if we project forward 10,000 years, um, when you and I are sitting back for episode number, at that point, it'll be uh, well into the 50 or 60,000 of this podcast. Yeah, and we're looking at the Great Lakes. What, what changes uh, will we be talking about then? What I think would be really cool is being there when Niagara River eventually erodes the, the falls, erode back to Lake Erie. And so what you're going to get there is uh, a lake uh, where the eastern basin of Lake Erie is. And yeah. the central basin and western basin will just be an extension of the Detroit River. Huh. Yeah. That's and one so what's thing. the time frame on that? Uh, you can calculate it, but it's slowed down a lot because what Canada and the United States do now is they divert the water from – a considerable amount of the water is diverted out of Niagara Falls. Oh, sure. To, to, to create hydropower. And so there's just enough water to make it look impressive. Um, and because of that, the, the rate of erosion has slowed – Tremendously. So I can't let you go without asking about, I think, what uh, something that might be your favorite part about the Great Lakes, which is they uh, also have a lot of hockey teams. I go to your... uh, (laughs) I went to your website, and Uh I think uh, uh, hockey was mentioned on there at least... Uh, I don't know, 26 different times. So in two minutes, uh, I know nothing. Well, actually, here's what I know about hockey. For a very little while in New Orleans, they had a minor league hockey team, the New Orleans Brass. And I used to sell beer at the New Orleans Brass games. And so I sold Mm -hmm. a lot of beer, uh, but didn't necessarily watch a lot of hockey. And it was minor league hockey anyway, so it was mainly Mm -hmm. scoring goals and fighting, um, which... You know, I guess it's part of it. But so what is your 90-second NHL analysis for this year so that we can uh, look back and, and think about it? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's, oh, thanks, thanks a lot for the, uh, for the opportunity to talk about hockey because Clarkson <laughs> University is, is a big hockey place. Oh, perfect. Um, but I'll tell you the truth, uh, Stuart. Um, I skate around 80 games a year, and so that's what uh, NHL players skate. Uh, right. But I, I spend most of my time as a as – a, USA Hockey referee. Oh, and really? So, yeah, and so my 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 it's my my side gig on weekends. I'm doing a game tonight. Um, so, 
Yeah. That's crazy. Hold on. We have, this is now has to extend a little bit longer. So as a hockey referee, so USA hockey, what level of, uh, what level of hockey is it that you ref? Um, right now I primarily do midgets and bantams and peewees. And tonight's I've got a squirt game. So I'll, ages eight to 18 and okay. I do uh, women's 19 new games. Um, it's all, it's all great fun. And, and, you know, fighting is not part of the game. Um, fighting, there's rules against fighting. And so if people even swing, they're out of the game. So it's, um, we, 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 we keep a pretty tight ship. Yeah. And nobody <laughs> wants to watch a bunch of eight year olds throwing down on the hockey. Uh, well, well, some of them tried to do it, but you know, there's, they got to learn that there's a different, what we call standards of play rules. of play. Yeah. So it's, it's a beautiful game and it's, it's so fun to watch kids out there, uh, being really uh, healthy and, yeah. uh, and having a good time, good sport. Yeah, so I was in uh, Texas for a while uh, working for Texas Sea Grant, and uh, there were a significant culture of, you know, people are really into, like, peewee football and eight-year-old mm-hmm. football in a way that is very Texas, shall we say. <laughs> uh, do, do you find uh, the same sort of intensity around the, the young hockey, too? Yes. Um, hockey in this region is is very big, and yeah. so it's it's pretty intense. We have... You know, the Montreal Canadiens play two hours away from where we are here. Okay. The, the Ottawa Senators play an hour and a half away from us. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of hockey. There always has been traditionally. Um, they've been playing hockey here for since the early 20s. Huh. So I guess, I guess we're getting up to 100 years of, of collegiate hockey here at Clarkson. Wow. Yeah. Was Clarkson any good? Are y'all good? Uh, the men have never won the... Uh, the, the NCAA, however, are women. Since I've been here, they started a team, and they've won the, the national championship three times. Wow. Yes, and so we're, we're pretty proud of them. They are, uh, they are amazing athletes. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, we'll put a link to that in the, the show notes as well. Oh, that, so... my, uh, my university would love that. And Carolyn, where, <laughs> are, you, Carolyn, where are you from? I'm from uh, just south of Windsor, so Amherstburg, which you might actually know Amherstburg because yeah, yeah, of the lakes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, yeah, that's the um, the um, uh, the Griffin. Actually, it's his yep. base at the Coast Guard base there. Yeah, Amherstburg. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's I used to uh, ride my bike down there and just sort of look at it longingly. So yeah, um, yeah. And so growing up, we were always it was you either rooted for the Red Wings or mm-hmm. the Leafs. The Leafs. And I'm <laughs> see, I'm very much on the Red Wings, man. <laughs> oh, I was, God bless you. It was because I started following them in the mid '90s when they were really good. So. Uh, that's so that's so cool. I, uh, I, I moved to Canada in 1967 and uh, uh, we moved to Quebec City and then we moved to Northern Ontario and we got to Northern Ontario. Um, this town is either um, all Canadians fans, the French people, or they're all Leafs fans, which would be the English people. And so even though we're Americans, my dad said, well, we just came from Quebec. So why don't you, why don't you cheer for the, 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 the Montreal Canadians? And so... I ended up hanging around with a totally different crowd. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fantastic. It was all good. That's fantastic. So how did you, uh, I, don't, I don't know how long we should prolong this, but how did you get into hockey refereeing then? So you must have liked to play, right? Um, and enjoyed, yeah. I mean, you have, yep. And yeah, then, yeah. I, was a, I was a bit of a moron as a, as a, as a teenager. Um, <laughs> well, I stopped playing in bantams because I, I liked to fight. And... Uh, and I did that, and uh, but other guys were bigger than me, 
<laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's, I kind of stopped doing it then because it was just, it's just wrong. And then, uh, let's see, I started playing again at Trent University. And that was intense because it was intramural, but it was contact hockey. It was body checking. And then I moved down here and uh, folks here play like Monday nights, the faculty. And so I got into it. And then one day someone asked me to help out with uh, refereeing a, uh, an ROTC game, uh, Army versus Air Force here on, on campus. And I said, oh, I could ref. I, I know how to skate. So I, I did it and I got hooked. And uh, I'm in my seventh year now. And it was really awkward when I first started because, you know, as an older person and you're a referee, people think, oh, you're experienced. But there's a, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to learn in, in how to referee and how to control uh, people, manage the game, know, know all the rules. Um, but primarily, it's just keep it safe. If you if you do a sport, you should consider being a, a ref, refereeing it because you get to oh. – I, I get I'm a lots. softball coach. Uh, I oh, you coach are? my daughter's softball team. And yeah, I was in a non-competitive league. Uh, and, you know, I would like to point out that we won every game. Um, but, wow. Uh, You're very humble. You're very humble. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's not humble to point out the truth, which is that we won every game in our non-competitive league. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, you don't need to be – it's not. It's just the way it is. Uh, facts, Everyone. Facts Everyone. are facts. Okay. Uh, but – but I found that the, the biggest, I mean, we actually did run into in this non-competitive league one parent issue. Oh, uh, yeah. You, you know, and it's like, holy moly. Um, because, yeah, people take things seriously. So so bringing this back, let's bring it all the way back around to uh, our raison d'etre. That's French for those of you in Canada. Uh, with the Great Lakes, the, here's the real reason I brought you on. What would it take to freeze a Great Lake thick enough that we could play hockey on it? That is the real question. Hmm. That's a lot of loss of heat. I know a, so, buddy, of, a buddy of mine, Mike McKay at, uh, at uh, the University of Windsor, um, worked with folks from the U.S. Coast Guard, and they actually got out and skated around on Lake Erie one year. No kidding. Oh, I kid you not. No, it's great. Yeah. Um, and I might mention that every year uh, since 2005, we have been playing a fundraising hockey game at the International Association for Great Lakes Research. And oh, no I'm, kidding. Yeah, I'm, I'm the commissioner. I started it all, and, uh, and we raise uh, tens of dollars uh, every year. Um, actually, hundreds of dollars, I should say. Um, <laughs> And so we play hockey. It's Canada versus USA, and it's uh, it's fun to do. And so we that played in, we played in, uh, we played in Detroit, we played in Toledo, Toronto, Hamilton, Peterborough. Yep, no. we play all around. And what do y'all raise money for? Is it for Agler itself, or is it for a charity, a different charity, or no? It's all for the Agler Scholarship because a number of us have benefited from the Agler Scholarship, and so we're trying to give money back to the. Uh, to the association to support other students who want to study the Great Lakes. Well, that's awesome. It sounds like a really fascinating field, and we really appreciate you taking a few minutes to teach us about this. Now, uh, if people are interested uh, in learning more, they can go to your webpage, which I will link to in the show notes. And I believe you're also on Twitter. Is that right? Do you have a Twitter handle that you'd like to share? Yes, I do. It's uh, it's at mtwist. At mtwist. And we'll also link to that in our show notes, which again are at teachgreatlakes.transistor.fm slash two, because this is episode number two. Well, uh, Dr. Michael Twist, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to teach us about the Great Lakes. 
Well, you're welcome, Stuart. And, uh, and it's been nice talking with you and Carolyn today about the Great Lakes. Well, that was a really interesting interview, Carolyn. What's something that you learned about the Great Lakes today? Um, I learned that there's evidence that caribou hunting took place on one of the reefs out in the Great Lakes. And that is just brilliant. Brilliant. How about you, Stuart? It is really on... It's really on brand of you to have learned that and to have loved how, how brilliant that is. Uh, I learned that the Great Lakes are like 10,000 years old. I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. So that, uh, to me, is pretty interesting stuff. Thank you so much for tuning in to Teach Me About the Great Lakes. We'll be back again next month with a new episode. In the meantime, I encourage you to check out Sea Grant at iicgrant.org. Feel free to follow uh, the Sea Grant, Illinois Indiana Sea Grant on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash ilin Sea Grant for Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And you can follow the show too on Twitter at uh, Teach Me, nope, at teach great lakes sorry i just made the account like yesterday and so i'm still learning this stuff anyway at teach great lakes and if you have questions there is no question too stupid for this podcast because i promise you nobody knows less about the great lakes than i do at least right now when uh, michael and i are back here in fifty thousand years i'll know a lot but until then uh, we'll see you next time thank you